The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book club and now watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show, which premiered two weeks ago. And we are now all the way deep into episode four. Today, we're not going to be talking about the book, Eye of the World. We're just going to be talking about episodes three and four of Wheel of Time on Amazon. I am Kayla Wimble, and with me today is Keely Frank. Oh. And special guest, Nicholas Wicks. Guys. Uh, Nick, it is awesome to have you. Before I before I have you introduce yourself to everybody, I'll just remind folks that you can find us all at Wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash Wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps. Join us on Patreon at the $5 Tar Volunteer, and you'll get access to special bonuses. There are two of them up so far where we talk about Dune, both the novel and the history of the series, the other movies, and the new Denis Villeneuve one. It's a pretty cool series of discussions. In the future, we'll be talking about things like Wheel of Time short stories, graphic novels, video games, TV pilots that you haven't seen in all likelihood, and more. Email us questions, comments, and corrections at contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer them here on the show. Nick, uh, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us about yourself and your relationship to Wheel of Time as our first official Wattcast guest? <laughs> sure. So I, I'm uh, like an hour southwest of Philly, but in terms of my relationship with uh, Wheel of Time, I started reading the book series probably months ago, uh, not even knowing there was a TV show coming out. Um, and I just finished book nine today, actually, uh, and started the prologue of and Oh, man. Um, B- big events in book nine. Yeah. Not Lots of things them. coming together. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, so then, yeah, I did catch the episode or um or was it episodes four last night and then mm-hmm. uh, i caught the other ones when they first came out last week as well so yeah so that's pretty cool that you are do you're basically doing the same thing a lot of us on the wadcast are coming it to the first time reading the books and doing the show except you got a much bigger head start than most of us getting getting through the books that fast uh what what are your yeah. thoughts on on the ser- without getting into spoiler territory your thoughts on the series so far uh the books in general i guess and and how and how you're feeling about the show these first four episodes in yeah i the book series is is awesome i mean uh for i had a a a friend of mine recommend it to me and he said he had read it like three times i was like that's insane so i've got (laughs) i've got to read this read this series uh and yeah i think the the first book caught my interest um i think it was like later i learned that he hadn't signed like a deal for the whole series at that point and so i feel like the first book you know uh it definitely caught my interest and then then you know once i got into the second one i think that's when i got hooked um and then just started reading like every a book every two weeks i feel like just trying to like oh, blaze wow. through them the last six months or so yeah um but but very happy with with a book series i think it's really um 
compelling. And then the TV series, I, I think I'm on the fence on. You know, there are some things mm. that I that I find really good. Uh, other things that you know I, I have like pet peeve about here or there. Um, probably you know because I've just read the book so recently. Um, but but overall, you know, pretty pretty happy with it. Yeah, I would, I would think it makes a big difference too. Haven't gotten a lot farther because so much of our experience, and even me who read the. Um, the entire book series before Eye of the World uh, leaves so much to the like second half or the last quarter of the book. And there's so much of even like the character development, I feel like that does not happen until book two. Uh, but that the show, I think, is probably my favorite part about the show is that they have sort of advanced the characters along a little bit at the beginning and they're a little bit older and they're getting a little bit more of the personalities that we see come out later in the first book and in the other series. But if you've just read all the way through nine, like the characters go through so much and have so much more development that takes place. The ones that, the ones that make it anyway, uh, that it, I would imagine gives a very different perspective on the way the show is depicting them so far. Yeah. There's so much character development in, in, in each of the books, but yeah, you're right. The, the first book really does pack a lot into the last quarter, but I, I feel like the, the show does a, has been doing a good job of like, sticking to you know not not like to the letter of the law if you will but spirit of it you know trying to stick yeah. to the spirit of what they're trying to accomplish in the show and maybe not hitting on all the points they need to or maybe adding something that weren't there in the books but still in a way that they're uh illustrating the characters correct like accurately this week's episode um yesterday was thanksgiving so you know happy thanksgiving to everybody listening to this probably not until a few days after at least, but we got episode four, uh, which was called, tellingly, I think, The Dragon Reborn, and gave us maybe our biggest set of changes, or not so much changes as um, different framing and order of events and time from the book. Like, things happen in a very different order in episode four, and in a very different set of locations than they do in Eye of the World. I don't know if you remembered all those being so different, Nick, or if it's been a lot, if you've gotten so many books through that that, that didn't stand out so much that they changed it, but it feels I dramatic reading Eye of the World. Yeah. 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 No, I think I did notice that. Yeah. You could tell, I remember, cause I think the first book probably left the biggest impression on me. And then, <laughs> and then the middle ones are all sort of a blur of a different plot. Turns, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do the, the, you could tell the, the locations and the, um, like the situations changed a little. I guess we should just start with episode three, since we haven't talked about it on the show, and quickly go through our thoughts on that one, which we didn't touch on last week, predominantly because I was talking at first with Katie and then with Dan, who had only seen through the first two episodes. And episodes one and two, they set up everything in the two rivers, All the at least the first five to ten chapters is all crammed in there in the first episode. Uh, Emmons Field mostly burns down. Moraine leaves with her charges. They We skip most of the inns and cities. It just took us right along the road on like this really high octane chase sequence to Shadar Logoth, where um, we skipped the figure of Mordeth, but we still had Mashadar, the Black Mist, represented as this kind of, I thought, pretty cool, almost cartoony shadow that is traveling. Like in... Not in like a cartoony, colorful way, but a, like the camera would pan up and just parts of the city are turning pure black as Mashadar spreads. 
chases the party, separates them, brings us to episode three, a place of safety where uh, Moraine is trying to hunt everybody down with Lan, except Moraine is injured in the show very badly. So she is increasingly unconscious for most of episode three as the Sheol ghoul poison works into her. And I start to wonder whether Rosamund Pike was maybe not available for as much filming on this or if this was a purely dramatic decision. Uh, and Matt and Rand are trekking across the wilderness and trying to find their way on their own because there is no Tom Merrillad yet uh, at the beginning of episode three of the show. So they have no guide, no guardian. Egwene and Perrin are running and they also have no guide, no guardian because Elias also does not show up yet. And finally, Nynaeve comes back in. She escaped from the Trollocs, which is an even more dramatic way, I think, of her tracking down the party in the book. I thought that was a pretty cool, you know, that's a, that's a good a dramatic addition to have her taken from the two rivers, fake out that she might be dead, but definitely not because we didn't see her die and then catch up here and try her best after Land convinces her to try to heal Moraine. And then finally, even though we don't meet Elias or Tom early on, Random Matt end up in a mining town where they meet Tom. A very different version of Tom, I think, from the Tom we know at that point in the books. And then finally, Egwene and Perrin, after running from wolves for a while, some strangely acting wolves, meet the Twathan, the traveling folk, or the Tinkers. Keely, did you have any uh, like immediate thoughts on, on episode three? I'll tip my hand by saying... Episode three is my least favorite episode of the show so far and had maybe my least favorite changes. Although I do think, you know, getting ahead of ourselves, that episode four mostly made up for that for me. So uh, I, I don't know. How did you feel about about uh, this point in the TV show? Yeah, I think I kind of agree with you that so far I thought episode three was kind of like, meh. I'm still conflicted about how they've changed Tom in the mm -hmm. show because he is such a big part and like it, it feels kind of... I don't really know how to explain it, but just like it feels like a part of the family was just like thrown in last second. Like, eh, I guess we'll yeah. throw Tom in. Um, also him, that whole scene of like him being kind of a dick to Matt and taking mm -hmm. his money at the beginning and then kind of having his own like redemption with Matt later when he's getting the the valuables off of the corpse was like, what was that? That was weird. I didn't yeah. super enjoy that. The entire character of the barmaid, I forget what her name is, like Dana, Dana or something. Mm -hmm. What the hell was that? <laughs> I don't know. If that's, <laughs> I'm only like halfway through chapter 33 in the first uh -huh. book. I've, so I don't know if she's going to end up being part of it, but that just felt so weird. Um, like I, I told you, Jerry, my husband was sitting here watching part of that episode with me, having not watched or read anything. And the whole time I'm like, she's got to be a dark friend. She has mm -hmm. to be a dark friend. She's just fucking up for Voldemort. <laughs> she's got to be a dark friend. And then at the end, they announced it. And he was like, oh, you were right. I was like, well, I just, it was weird. I think probably my favorite part, though, of that entire thing was her being like, oh, no one could break down that door. And then Rand just going <laughs> full Hulk and breaking it down. I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there were like a bunch of those like you, the book changes in that in that set of scenes, right? Even the even knocking knocking down the door, I think in the book it was like the uh it was like lightning that came down, right? And yeah, broke yeah. open the wall or something. Yeah, in in the scene with that one rich merchant dark friend who's been trailing them. But I feel like what this episode was doing, because we have skipped every inn and town the party stays at so far, that's partly a frustration for me because I feel like we've lost a lot of the color of the world and a lot of the local culture and feeling and like sense of place. This mining town felt kind of like a movie set to me. It didn't really feel like a real place with real people. None of the background characters have anything to say except background. And 
you know, just chatter. They didn't feel like real people. And Dana sort of has the job of compressing like, I don't know, seven or eight different dark friends that they meet in the course of that section, that middle section of the novel where Rand and Matt are on the run. Yeah. And she also has to do a lot of the emotional heavy lifting of various conversations that Rand has with different farmers and characters they pass along the road and some people who are more sympathetic to what the boys might be going through and on the run and some who are more skeptical. And it's just all placed on her as one character who, as you said, Gilly, you were thinking from the very moment you saw her and she started being too nice initially, I guess, like there's something like that. She's got an agenda in in the moment that that she starts talking with them. I was trying to figure out at one point, I I don't think I saw them refer to her as Dana until maybe I saw it in a caption thing. But Mm -hmm. at first I was wondering if this was like, um, this was Mint or something because yeah yeah that's i was what I like yep. i was like oh is this is this how they're introducing men because mm-hmm. you know the uh, men was at early, early introduced early in the series uh and there was like a town but i also thought it was weird the mining aspect of it specifically because i was also coming at it from oh is this where they're like you know there was a, a scene where they're digging out uh you know one of like the statues or whatever in in uh, I forget what, I think it was book one, but maybe one it was One of the art- artifacts from the Age of Power, right, they passed, right. partly dug and out. And so that yeah. was the only, the only mining that I remember from that book. So I thought it was, as I couldn't place where they were, because I, I feel like I remember when they left to go to Keeneland, it was all like farm towns or like, mm-hmm. you know, not, I don't remember seeing anything about uh, mining. So I was trying to figure out what was going on there and approaching it from an angle. Yeah, it, it's totally something. I mean, Dana, the only thing that is actually from a direct scene in the books, I think. Other than, you know, the door breaking down is reminiscent of the lightning moment. Dana is the name of a dark friend at some point, I think, but I can't remember which one. And she certainly didn't die like that this early. So I think they're they're taking her for somewhere else. But the, the mining town thing that's not there, I wonder if maybe partly what is feeling kind of fake to me about all of it is that as much as I am enjoying the show a lot so far and the way they're adapting things, I don't feel like there's much of a place being established for types of clothing and dialect and culture indicating a part of the world, uh, which is something, you know, that's a big strength, I feel, of Game of Thrones and something that people loved about Game of Thrones was that, you know, it's like a thinly veiled medieval Europe in a, in a lot of ways and with thinly veiled uh, England's Hundred Years War with elements of the War of the Roses. So you get a real sense of like, you know, a character's accent and their dialect and tells you a lot about their class, tells you a lot about their culture, where they're from in this world. Their dress tells you if they're from down south or across the sea or if they're up north where they have the fur line stuff. Wheel of Time, as much as I like a lot of the costume work and things, I don't feel like it's communicating much. Like the, what the characters wear, other than the Twath on, just seems like a medley of of um, Renaissance fair type fantasy garb. And the characters' accents are all over the place because, you know, the, t- the, we- the Two Rivers folk, they don't necessarily sound Irish or anything or from like the North country. They just, so many people just sound like vaguely Queen's English, which may be because this is a cast from all over the world. And like, you know, Rand's actor is Danish and we have, we have actors who are American and we have actors who are, uh, who are English and then others from various parts of Europe. So maybe that's a necessary complication of having, you know, the cast for the actors they wanted, not necessarily for the world they wanted to build. But I do feel like the Something about this mining town felt the weakest and and fakest to me of any of any location so far. Hilly, you you were mentioning this Tom we get not really jiving right away. I feel like he's he's winning me a bit more in episode four, but in ep three, I'm like, 
who is this low energy, bad country singer being a dick to Matt? Like the moment that he meets them, this is not Tom. <laughs> and that's the first yeah. time I felt that about a character, I think. Yeah, it just felt kind of lazy and like a weird way to introduce him as like a big part of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, but going to what you were saying, like he even says to Matt, like, oh, from your accent, and your clothes, I can tell you're from the two rivers. Like, uh -huh. Bullshit, you can, because yeah. all of your accents <laughs> don't make fucking sense. But yeah, I just I didn't really like kind of the whole vibe of how he's being introduced. And then again, it's another kind of strange adult showing up like, just trust me. Mm. Like, why? I'm happy that Rand was like, why? Like, who the hell are you? Why should I trust you? Like, mm -hmm. you know, everyone is, you know, potentially a bad guy. So um, I will say that I do enjoy the kind of not necessarily like banter, but like the witty comments coming from some of the different people. Um, I, like first episode when Rand goes, he's doing that whole scene with Egwene and he goes to hand her the berry and she's like, it's mm. in your fucking pocket all day. Like <laughs> yeah. gross. And then when Matt and Rand get separated and Rand is like talking about the Lord, he's like, well, all roads lead to this. And Rand's like, that's not how fucking, or Matt said, that's not how roads work. It's like, mm -hmm. so I am enjoying that they're like calling things out a little bit. Um, so I, I'll say like some of that dialogue has been good and I hope that they keep that up. That was even something that we, that came up on the podcast because um, I, I don't remember if it was you, but folks were talking about, wait a second, how, why do they have to go to Tar, to, to Camelin to get to Tar Valen? And we were pulling out the maps and like trying to figure out how <laughs> the roads work in this world. And then, you know, the characters kind of, like you said, they put a pin in it for us here because we can't see a map on screen necessarily so they're they're giving us yeah. like a, the lay of the land a bit like some of the stuff that they're explaining is is okay but mm. it also kind of feels kind of lazy i'm hoping like the tom thing maybe my only thought is like maybe they're trying to show him as like washed up from his former self and maybe later on we'll get a glimpse of like a more glamorous you know mustachioed mm. like white haired tom <laughs> that's, tom that's what i'm hoping actually do acrobatics and like leap yeah. around with it. yeah <laughs> Yeah, maybe because there is a big reveal that we have already gotten to in the book. So we can talk. I, I believe we can spoil it here because it's not a spoiler to our listeners who are reading along that that we already know now that Tom was a, a major court figure in Andor and Camelin and he had this love affair with Queen Morghese. And it was like basically one of the most respected bards in the world and, and one of considered one of the most knowledgeable, something the show even hints at a little more explicitly here. I guess it's in episode four. He's like, you know, Glee, people fear Gleeman because Gleeman know things and they, they know a lot. And there's the hint that they're, they're not just entertainers. They're also spies and sort of librarians of knowledge from across the entire world as they travel all, all over the place. So we do start to get maybe a little bit more of that coming in. Oh, I did the only, I guess the only other thing I wanted to be sure to say about the mining town was you mentioned the scene with the corpse and, and Matt Keeley, uh, we, and we get the Aiel corpse. I did feel like this was one of those good compressed world building moments. It's one of those things where Jordan references the Aiel at various places in the first half of the novel. And we hear like snippets about the Aiel war, but I thought it was a pretty good distillation to show us an actual, even admittedly a dead Aiel who get, who basically we hear has been lynch mobbed and was searching the, uh, searching Andor or the Western world for something. Did, did we find out what he was looking for when people got suspicious of him? And then basically the whole town teamed up to kill him because, you know, they think of Aiel as outlander monsters, essentially. And he is dressed in a way that is actually distinct from everybody. So we get that. Anybody have any thoughts on on that particular moment in 
and the the emotional beat with with Matt and Tom there. Wasn't there? There was a. It's interesting that they had him cut the corpse down because there's. Mm-hmm. I forget if it's in that book or a later one. There's a scene similar to that. Um, I won't give it away anything, but like where where someone one of the characters cuts a corpse down. So I, right. I did think that that like mm-hmm. illusion that scene maybe what had something to do with it that I thought was like kind of nice, but even if it's not the exact place characters you know that's still that's a great that pool. A memorable, I, t- I totally forgot about that yeah that was a memorable scene uh but i don't think they talked about um like exactly why they killed him other than uh tom alluding to you know just general nativism and like mistrust of of strangers mm-hmm. well i so think I get... the only thing that he said was something about like if if they're wearing didn't he say something about like if they're wearing the thing over their the veil, face yeah yeah, then they're considered dangerous because mm-hmm. they're like covering something. But then he pulls down the veil and he shows Matt like, but he was just like a dude. I didn't yes. totally understand what he was getting at there, but yeah. Yeah, that that's a really good point. He does he does share that tidbit about um we we have heard in the novel in passing people have used like as an insult black veiled Aiel and stuff like that. I think that was one of the the first ones we called out. Is like oh you know dis- like like basically ethnic disparagements that we hadn't gotten. Until then, but yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, Tom Tom points out that you, know, you can tell if an idol is dangerous and is about to kill you because their veil is going to be up there. But they're totally harmless if the veil is down. They don't intend any violence, which ultimately leads up after Matt after Matt and Tom sort of make pleasant acquaintances, and for whatever reason, Matt sort of decides to trust him despite that Matt is really distrusting and paranoid at this point. Um, he does ultimately show up to save them from Dana, who I thought th- this scene did not work for me. I thought it was almost comical, her stealing Rand's heron blade and chasing them around, waving it like through the laundry in the village. It was something out of a Looney Tunes bit almost <laughs> in the backyard here. And then somehow um, this is this is. At this point, I don't think you can do this in Hollywood. Like, um, Tom saves them by, th- by as Dana is standing there giving a speech about how all the dark friends know who they are. And they have they have the five from the two rivers in their dream. And, oh, the five, not the four. Who is this fifth person that she's talking about? Because we only know a four that Moraine is interested in. And then suddenly a dagger shoots through her neck. Not like into her neck or throat. Through her spine, a dagger emerges and is... Sure, yeah, people get impaled by a lot of things in the show so far, I'm noticing, in very, like, large metal implements way that go clean through them. I don't care how skilled Tom is with a knife. He's not—nobody is throwing a knife through a spine. A spine is a really uh, thick, sturdy—anyway, but Tom saves them from, from her, and then they decide to run off with him, I guess because more dark friends are going to be on the way. I, I, I'm seeing, like— Silent laughter and shaking heads about the chasing around the sword scene. I take it it didn't work for anyone. I think that was the worst scene of the whole series so far <laughs> yeah, for me. Yeah. I really think, I mean, Keely, you alluded to it. Like, and it, it, I it's just like so this innkeeper, even if she is a dark friend, knows how to use a blade like that. Like, she also had like some fancy sword work that was going on too, which uh-huh. felt really off. Yeah, and like at one t- at one point, so uh, like Jerry was sitting there watching it. There, they keep cutting from like. Rand running to Dana and at one point they cut back and she's straight up doing like the Terminator like run and Jerry and I both were like what the hell is that like how did she turn into Uh, almost like an anime character chasing mm -hmm. him through this town um and then I'm kind of getting the same vibe from like 
the first episode where like Moraine is basically standing in the rain outside waiting for Lan to announce her. Where mm-hmm. like so was Tom supposed to be like on his way that whole time to find them, or was he like standing in the shadows waiting for the perfect moment to impale her with this knife? <laughs> like dramatic entrance. Um, because it's like, oh, she conveniently had enough time to explain all these things before she drops dead. Yeah. So just like <laughs> I think because of how ridiculous the scene was up to that point, it kind of the immersion broke. And then I started questioning everything about yeah. the scene, which kind of sucked. But Which is a shame, I think, because the actual the actual novel scene in the in the inn where they're where random matter kind of stuck late at night and can't leave where they're being forced to play because the innkeeper and his giant muscled goons wants to kill them and rob them. But then there's also a dark friend that they suspect is there, this guy in the the fancy dress who wants to go. So they're kind of like trapped up in the room and they're there trying to figure out how to get out tonight. And we get the showdown and the dark friend winds up killing the innkeeper's guys and is waiting outside the door with a whole bunch of armed guards. Like, you know, like it's not just one one fancy rich dude um, who's got a steel ran sword and wave, wave it around. They've got like a little posse here. There's no way out. They're on the second floor. They can't really jump out the window without hurting themselves badly. And then we get the like leading up to the lightning strike that comes through. Which to me, and then knocks them unconscious and then blinds Matt. That is way more dramatic. And that scene was more effective for me than anything that happens on screen here. So I feel like they should have just taken that. That was like ready made for cinema right there. And the only thing I can think is that they wanted to get that. Well, they still could have had the Dana monologue because that particular dark friend gives a monologue outside the door trying to convince them to, oh, like, you know, open the door and here's what the dark one's going to give you. He'll make you dreadlords. He will give you immortality and power and everything you want. And all you got to do is, you know, you just you, you just got to be on the right side of history here and breaking the wheel. And yeah. Um, so I guess what what else what else happens in this episode? We get a lot of stuff with Moraine being unconscious and with Nynaeve and Lan arguing and Nynaeve finally agreeing to try to heal Moraine, although she doesn't really succeed. She just kind of staves off the worst of the infection, I guess, um, which was an interesting choice, but it's giving us more time with just Moraine and Land, whereas in the book, we never get to see the scenes alone with them because we're stuck in Rand's perspective. <clears throat> and all Rand notices is that there's some weird looks being exchanged between the t- between the two. Although we do get the naive perspective chapters with her competition thing she has going on about their tracking abilities. I thought, you know, these, these scenes worked. They were they were they were pretty functional. I didn't I didn't have a whole lot of thoughts about them on, on this episode for the Moraine land and naive stuff either of you i think the the one scene that kind of let me down was so she gets all the stuff she goes over to moraine and then she looks at land and says like you know they say that the warders can feel what the ice that i feel so like mm. prepare yourself this is gonna hurt and like mushes the stuff into the wound and then nothing happens i was like did he feel it what happened oh <laughs> you, you didn't you didn't notice uh land's temple subtly throbbing uh there like, and then work, working a his tiny jaw. bit yeah. but it was like it wasn't enough to be like <laughs> no, oh no. he's actually like it felt kind of lame like they set it up like oh mm-hmm. you're about to get fucked up and he was just like he clenched his jaw like <laughs> that kind of let me down like if you're gonna mm-hmm. specifically put that dialogue in you have to make it noticeable that like she's in pain and not just you know more rosamund pike laying there dramatically well i think they're, tr- they're clearly trying to sell that lan is really really stoic and has a really really high pain tolerance but i agree they needed there need to be a little more <laughs> a little more visual indicator there like he could grunt at least as uh... <laughs> As taking that that vicarious agony, and is that when do they do they do meet 
the red Aja at the end of the episode, right? Leading leading Loghain to Camelin. And is this the first time we actually learned that's Loghain? Because we had him in the prologue to episode one, but he's never named. He's lo- like running from the red Aja there. Was it this is the third? I thought it was the fourth episode where they named Maybe, maybe. The recap mentions his name at, at the end of episode three, but we do see him arrive in, in the crate, right? And they're and they, they call him or they just call him a false dragon at that point. Yeah. I think is so. that what happens? Okay. So we're getting we're getting this this Leandrin encounter here and then kind of hanging with them. And we get Perrin and Egwene finally making it to the Twathan, the the Tinkers, which um I did I I am really glad the Tinkers are here. I felt like this introduction lost a lot of emotional context and narrative context without Elias being the one who introduces them and without having met the thing because the the because they don't know the song and they don't even know who the Tinkers are necessarily. So the the Tinkers kind of have to prompt them of the they give the first bit of their the religious bit about you know but you know we seek the song and whatever that part is, and then Aram. I think it's Aram, who is the young one of, of the Tinkers, is like, you're supposed to say, and then they fill in. But we don't get a whole lot of them here. They're kind of just the tail end of the episode on that introduction. Yeah, any any other, anything else we should say about Ep3 before just rolling into episode four here? No, I think it's a good, it's a good, it, it's a good like, transition into episode four, that last scene after the mining town mm-hmm. on Even Lanark starting all that adventure. Yeah, so, oh God, so much happens in episode four of The Dragon Reborn. And so much is brought in from other parts of the book. It was like a whirlwind of activity and world building and character development. I, I was here for it. I It's hard for me to separate fanboy, like childhood fanboyism and nostalgia from like seeing, you know, seeing the characters I like brought to life. And even though there are big changes made here, they are... They are changes that feel, like you said, Nick, early early on, changes that feel true to the spirit of the story and for compressing things for television. Uh, so, so yeah, what uh, so what what are folks' impressions of this episode? If we want to try to remember what happens to, because we don't have a handy recap uh, for this one, what were the big things that stuck out to in in last night's episode? So I so the I mean the definitely the play around Logan I thought was really uh, really well done, uh, e- even though they did. There was a lot of you said earlier stretching of like where the where they're lo- where they are located and, and I think some of some of the clothing uh, aspects and the cultural aspects get lost in that too because it was very distinct uh, in the book in a very different place but yeah that that part um, and then I I think uh, the actually just jumping back to the Elias thing I do think the Elias thing was. Even though it was a bummer, I thought he was a great character. I think they did have they like I understand why they did it. Introduce another mm-hmm. character in, and they could get away with like having the wolves kind of you know get along with Perrin uh, or like push them, and you could see has some sort of relationship with them was like a pretty good way to substitute that. Yeah, uh, rather than another character. Oh, you don't think they're still going to introduce Elias at some point? I assume he's going to show up at the Tinker Camp maybe. one night. I, I don't know. Yeah. It feels like if you didn't introduce him now, maybe not later. I don't know. Well, because they did that with Tom already, right? Where he doesn't show up in in the two rivers at the beginning, the first episode, like he's supposed to, and they delay him till the third one to True. to come in another place. Um, a lot more yeah, condensation. Yeah. Then they was gonna say back to the episode four, the Tuathuan. I thought scenes were also really distinct in that episode, mm-hmm. uh, along with like the the dragon scenes. Does it open with the dragon, uh, the false dragon scenes with Loghain at the castle in Gildan and the siege, and or is that near the I? Uh, that's like the first thing I remember maybe of him. Um, we get the scene of like the king and his guards running along the rooftop. And I don't know, is that anybody else here beside me played uh, the Witcher 2 video game by chance? 
No, on the okay, because this scene is filmed and feels and looks exactly like the opening scene of the of the Witcher two, uh, of where uh, where the king is also running from a magical assassin, like and his guards staying behind on the thing, and the city's being sieged, and Loghain's army is pulling in. This felt like probably one of the higher budget moments of the series so far, showing an actual castle. We don't see a lot of the army below, but we see them like sieging the gates and stuff, and we get so much. Uh, it communicated to us about Loghain that is only in the background of the book up until this point, which is cool. We get visualizations of what the, the taint, the Dark Ones, um, touch on Sayadin, the male half of the One Power, looks like because he's weaving a lot of flows of, I guess, that spirit that's going around him, but it's got this like slick black oil layer on. It does look kind of cartoony, but it sort of gets the point across, I think. And it, I thought that was a very cool moment. Uh, the moment he started like hearing all the voices and, and, and these these figures like of the madness whispering to him and telling him all these things. It was a good bit of misdirection because I'm leaning over to, to Eric and I'm like, wait a minute. This seems like, you know, he's going to he's going to listen to the voices and kill the king of Gildan. And like, but but Loghain has such a good handle on the madness in the book. He has like really firm control of what's happening and and how to and, and you know still has and then the very next moment it's like a fake out and he heals he heals the king of gildan instead of instead of killing him as the voices want him to and uh, and sort of does this um this recruitment moment of like the cult the cult leader or he, he actually <laughs> as keely and i were saying in, in the chat he looks he looks like fantasy jesus to me that's very much the the, the vibe that uh Loghain has going on here like but you've got that sort of like messianic figure going on and he he tells the king whose name escapes me that he, you know you know the past dragons broke the world my past lives and i am here to bind it together and to join all the nations to be ready to face the dark one so already i thought that was it's doing a really good job communicating so much about the Loghain plotline and what his motivations are and what the who the dragon is to people of the world. And the fact that, like, you know, this king decides to the, like he, he's convinced he, he signs on to join to join Loghain's army. And uh, but then we're skipping forward to Loghain being captured by the Red Aja and, ever, and everything. The Loghain thing is interesting, too, because like the, the I think the book book one, like you said, really just refers to him a lot in the background. It doesn't get very uh like detailed but but and definitely didn't have like this sort of scene in the book but i thought mm -hmm. the introduction of that scene and i agree with you it was really well done i think uh was was alluding to me or foreshadowing that they're gonna have he's gonna have a, a stronger role than in the book the book series because they're like clearly setting him up for you know uh like thinking he's the you know the dragon reborn and and some sort of some sort of plot line here Beyond, beyond what we saw. Mm. And even within the episode itself, they, uh, I, at the risk of getting ahead of where we are <clears throat> recapping things, he plays such a pivotal role in this episode and for the other characters by the end of it, which I guess we should start to work towards because the other two major plots of this episode are Moraine and Lan and Nynaeve rejoined with Moraine's sisters with some of the one of the or two of the green Aja and four or five of the red Aja led by Leandrin like the the part the the cohort that went to capture Loghain and we learned that they did it by stealth they like snuck into his camp at night and they they shielded him from the one power in his sleep and they snuck him out of there and scared off his army with some lightning bolts and I don't think this is something that happens at any point in Eye of the World. I don't think Nynaeve and Moraine and Lan ever join up with the Red, with the Leandrin like this. Maybe I'm, maybe that'll come up later in the book and I'm forgetting this in Eye of the World. But I think these are, 
events that are alluded to in the background of the Red Aja bringing Legain to Camelin. But to me, this communicated so much, and we learned so much about the Aes Sedai and about Warders and about Nynaeve's relationship with them here, that it, this this whole plot line felt very well condensed to me. I, I, I really enjoyed almost every minute in the Aes Sedai camp. And we, we do learn so much here. I, I know Keeley, in the flood of things that we are picking up about about the Aes Sedai and about um, how the One Power works and, and about the Warders and everything. And anything stand out to you in particular here in these in these scenes and these new characters we're meeting around the Aes Sedai camp? I think I just in general kind of liked seeing the other relationships between Warders and Aes Sedai and like mm-hmm. learning more about the different types of Aes Sedai. So I think so far we know like we know that the Red Ones go after the men the green ones are like the battle and then they refer to the blue as spies but Mm -hmm. i don't have they really explained the differences between all the colors yet or is it just kind of like anecdotal no just just anecdotal and even less in the novel and eye of the world we have learned that the red aja are they're the the cops of the Aes Sedai. they're the ones who like they they police any use of the one power and they hunt down men who can channel and are really dangerous tom tells us in the novel and he tells us here we get that scene about his nephew owen um if you're if you're somebody on their radar and yeah like you said we learned the green are the battleage and that's it and we know that moraine is blue here we're informed which is we don't learn till really late in, in eye of the world even she wears blue all the time but we don't know that she is blue aja and yeah like you said that there are the kind of spies and meddlers in in the affairs of the world like uh we know that moraine at least she's the only blue we've seen and she's very concerned about prophecy and attempting to line things up and 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 um and interfere with dark friends and the dark ones plans but i think i think that's all we know other than we've had people have mentioned the black aja who are not supposed to be real and the Aes Sedai deny they exist but they're the aja that are supposed to serve the dark one they're the dark friends among among the Aes Sedai i think i like that they said though that maureen is kind of like the spy one because i did feel like in the book Mm-hmm. She so far she has said so much that indicates that like she has so much knowledge of yes. things. Like you know they hint at how like powerful Egwene is and uh just like I I kept wondering like how does she know this? Mm-hmm. Like if if this is something that the I said I know then why is she the only one in the two rivers? Like why her specifically? So I like that they've kind of pointed out that like the blue are the ones that kind of try to figure things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she even says to to Lan, like, you know, we've been searching for 20 years. We finally found them and we lost them. It's like, oh, 20 <laughs> years you focused on this particular thing. Yep. Okay, now I have context and you're not like this all powerful because she just kept coming across as like the most powerful of the Aes Sedai with no context. And so now I kind of, I, I just appreciate that they kind of cleared that up a little bit. It's interesting that none of them, the red or the green even fully, like the red like her a lot less. They, the Leandrin really does not like uh, Moraine. We get the sense initially there's, there's, but also kind of fears and respects her. There's like a, there's sort of this general distrust they seem to have for the blue that the, because the blue do know things and the blue are so secretive and manipulative, uh, even among Aes Sedai, which is interesting because a lot of the world, a lot of the world building stuff we get from other people is that the Aes Sedai are manipulative and and secretive and will get you to do things. Um, they won't tell you the whole truth. They'll just tell you the truth that you think you hear. And, and, and that that's basically what we also get among their role with the other Aes Sedai too. Nick, it looked like you had something to say. On, on yeah, I was, gonna, I was just thinking through the, I think the Aes, the lot came out, the Aes Sedai and the warders, like uh, Keely, like you said, it was. I think the the relationships between the warders was really interesting. Uh, you got 
uh, naive kind of digging in on on some of the warriors around the campfire and that whole scene. And then they also had Ilana introduced as yes. like, which is like you know, and, which is funny because in the in the book I'm in, Ilana plays like a huge role. So oh yeah, to me, seeing her being introduced now was like was just perfect <laughs> for me because now I can like you know, sort of imagine her and I thought she was a strong character and that's uh, and Leandrin too is has very distinct description in the book of like the rosebud mouth blonde mm-hmm. hair like and I thought they 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 made a very they had a very distinct actress play play her which I thought was uh, really effective too so I was I was very excited about um, the whole scenes surrounding um, surrounding Logan like I felt like that carried the episode mm-hmm. uh, the other ones with the cloth on I thought were great too and then there was this with with Matt and Rand but I really felt like the the central part of the episode was around the low gang camp. Yeah, there's so much drama happening here and and we learn so much about the way the power functions although they they did change something pivotal. The correct now you you're you're steeped enough in the books Nick to correct me on this if I'm wrong. But I think they they make it backwards about the shields in the show. They flip this on its head where Moraine says it is Far harder to keep a, a shield on someone than to break out of one. That is, I believe, the opposite of how shielding works in, in, in the novels. It is very hard to put a shield on one. It's very hard uh, to cut someone off from the one power in the first place and shield them. But they, I think they establish very clearly in the books, once you have a shield on someone, even a much weaker channeler can keep them shielded. Yeah. It's very, very hard to break out of one. And they, yeah, they, flip, they flip that here. Yeah, they, it's because they talk about how it's it's very difficult once someone has embraced one of the powers to put a shield on them. Yes, it's that's true. Yeah. Throw a shield on them when they don't have it at all. But then, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Once they have the shield on them, it's like it's very difficult to to break out. But and I mean that scene where they have mm-hmm. to me that was like, that keeps ringing in my head where uh, Moraine is like stepped stepped up to Logan and said like you know the you may be powerful but like the power you have is like what did you say like a candle yeah, burning. Yeah. <laughs> Sun and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's part of the whole episode, dude. That was I love that moment of the, this tension of Moraine wondering if this is the dragon. Like she, she's the one who, you know, the one you even get the sense she might betray her own sisters if she decides that Loghain is the dragon reborn because she is on this quest to find him and to get him ready to defeat the Dark One, period. And no matter who gets in her way, that is like her goal. And the other Aes Sedai are talking about the Red Aja want to immediately, like they want to gentle and or kill him now rather than get him back to Tar Valen for trial. We have the tension of the two green Aja, Alana and the Aes Sedai who dies in this episode, whose name I have forgotten now, which is, she's she's cool in her brief scenes. I like her, the part she plays and her warders are awesome, but then she, uh, she dies in the course of this attack, you know, and that tension of, no, we have to bring him back for trial. Uh, but the the look, and this was a great Rosamund Pike moment, I thought, the look in her eyes when she decides while talking to, while talking to Loghain that he's not the dragon reborn, and because he says the thing about, like, he hears all the, all the past lives of his own talking to him, and she's like, ah, you're, it's just the madness, you're just another one, and you're, no, and you're nowhere near, as powerful as you are, like you said, like, no, nowhere near powerful enough, which sets us up for, I thought, a pretty awesome moment at the end of this arc in this episode, which even though it's the last thing in the episode, we can just get to where Loghain's army shows shows up and there's chaos in the camp and um, and Loghain breaks free of the shielding that Leandrin and this other green Aes Sedai um, have uh, on him and he is drawing in loads of the power and there's this dramatic co- confrontation and then Moraine comes in in the middle of all this fight to have this talk to see if he is 
the one. Turns out he's not the one as far as she's concerned. Um, and then he basically almost single-handedly defeats and is going to kill uh, all of, all of the Aes Sedai who are gathered there, uh, the ones who come running in and their warders. And, uh, and they also give us some good good information that Elida al- almost draws enough of the power to, or not Elida, uh, Leandrin, other red, uh, draws enough of the power to burn herself out. And Moraine's like warning her, you're going to, and we, and we even get it visualized with like her face is starting to <laughs> look like it's going to explode from, from light gathering in her. Loghain still defeats them all. But then uh, Nynaeve, come, Nynaeve comes in. It's like a, she, Lan is lying on the ground in a pool of blood pouring out from his neck. He's going to die any second now. And Nynaeve bursts into Super Saiyan mode. Her hair is like literally flying in the air with the one power as she touches it and heals even at a distance. Like everyone in this room that Loghain just uh, killed basically brings them all back in. Massive display of the power. And then Loghain has that. He repeats Moraine's line, burning like the sun or, or, or whatever it is about the amount of power, indicating with the episode name they re- that, that, that Nynaeve may actually be uh, the dragon reborn that they're alluding to at the end here. And is, that's where we, is that where we leave off with this, this plot line, with this group at that moment? It's a pretty dramatic scene. <laughs> uh, what would you all think of, of Nynaeve revealed here, especially Keeley, since we know she can wield the power in the books. We haven't had a scene like this yet, though, right? <laughs> Yeah, I was so excited. <laughs> like <laughs> watching it when the whole thing, she's like panicking in the woods, and I kept screaming, like, like just do something, like just mm-hmm. channel <laughs> something, just fucking blow everyone up. And so I was kind of like let down that she just gets dragged into, you know, towards the cave with with Lan at that point. So then when it finally happened, I was like screaming at the TV, like I scared my dog because I was like, fuck yeah, <laughs> I was so excited for her. Um, one thing I did notice, though, is that so I don't know if this is like intentional or, or if the actor just has dark eyes, but the actor that plays Loghain, when they zoomed mm-hmm. in at one point on his eyes, they're solid black, like his pupils are just black. So, like, mm. There's no color. When he's, and then when, they, when he's channeling the one. No, power. just like in general, when like oh. I saw that when he was talking, I think, to the king. I noticed, I was like, oh shit, his eyes are like, is that supposed to be a thing? And mm. then I noticed, maybe I'm just picking up on shit, but when they zoom in on Nynaeve's face for like that final scene, that her eyes are also kind of dark like that, which mm. again, like could just be, there, you know, they just have dark eyes in general. Um, but it just, you know, my brain picked up as like that parallel that like they can both access the power in different ways, but it might show itself physically in a similar way. I will say I was kind of confused, though, about how powerful Loghain was supposed to be, because they make a point of saying that, like, you know, it doesn't even look like he's struggling. You Mm -hmm. know, like, if we were actually containing anything that he was trying to push against, wouldn't he be, like, trembling or sweating or something? And then at one point, you know, he does just kind of, like, burst out. And so I I felt like he was going to play a bigger role, where, like, I said that, like, oh, well, if he got caught this early, he got caught intentionally mm-hmm. um and so for it to just kind of be like end of him it's like oh and they <laughs> like and they they do gentle him right they cut him off from the one power permanently yeah. and we see it like ripped out of his chest like uh like black angel wings almost <laughs> coming out to the sides yeah so it just felt like that they were building up for him to be more than he was or like maybe that's just supposed to be like their way of showing that like if men access it, even if they're not, you know, the next coming of Christ or whatever, you know, they just have so much more ability to fuck things up with it mm. than like if a woman can. No, I was gonna say I thought that I thought the land I mean, 
the land like this blade through his neck thing mm. was great for me as like a, a book reader and guys too because mm. i was like oh what are they they killing land off this early you know like i was like, super oh my god no. i can't believe they're doing this like and then I, yeah so but then when i knew healed him and that was that was so i thought that was like a great little twist that i was surprised at. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where they have not necessarily changed anything in the long run dramatically from the book, but it is such a change of the way that these events are presented here and Nynaeve and Lan being there for it. And and I'll, and I'll just say, as, as to what you're saying, Keely, about like how powerful Loghain is exactly, I think it's no, it's not the case that just any man who can channel is remotely as powerful as Loghain, and he is, he is the biggest threat I think they have set up in the novel and, and a little bit in the show, like... The most powerful, like, male channeler false dragon that the Aes Sedai have had to face in a very long time. But something else has to be going on here, right? Because Moraine is saying Egwene may be the most powerful channeler, most powerful Aes Sedai, potentially, that they've encountered in 800 years or since um, Ardor Hawking's Day, uh, Hawkwing's Day or something. And then, I don't know if they didn't give us this line in the show because it would have spoiled the end of this episode. But we know from Eye of the World that... Moraine is like having these conversations with Nynaeve and studying her and testing her. And then she says either to her or to Lan, yeah, Egwene was the most powerful potential that I had encountered, that any Aes Sedai has encountered in maybe a millennium. Nynaeve is at least twice as powerful as her, like, uh, like absurdly powerful. So there's all these characters popping up. And I think maybe that's why, why Moraine is like wondering about Loghain and whether they're all like this, this, all this power is coming into the world in a way that the Aes Sedai are not really prepared for. We learned that there are now five potential dragons. So help me out. Help me out here. We know from the first episode. Okay. I guess they are all accounted for. Moraine says it's Matt, Egwene, Rand, Perrin. And now, even though they already established Nynaeve is supposed to be five or six years older, that she is the, the fifth potential one. And that's like the, you know, the big reveal at the end of this episode. But are they trying to say they did have a scene in the first episode, right, where it's ambiguous what her childhood was because she was a foundling just like Rand and she was brought from somewhere else just like Rand. So I guess it's, they're trying to make it unclear. Maybe she was born 20 years ago, which Loghain was also not. So that should have ruled him out. But Moraine's like, eh, I don't know, maybe we got the prophecies wrong or something because um, we did learn maybe in episode three. I'm forgetting which one now. Moraine reveals that 20 years ago she got the, this uh, this old super old Aes Sedai who was dying had like a deathbed prophecy that the dragon reborn had just been born right and 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 that that's sort of the reason that Moraine has dedicated her life to this path and she she knew like the exact moment of of birth that the baby was supposed to come into the world but yeah so so huge revelations there seeing the warder relationships and things developing with with Lan and Nynaeve we actually get we get uh, we get a fun scene of of uh, two uh, Leandrin's two or sorry uh, Alana's two bisexual warders who are like a kind of cuddling by the fire and then the three of them go off to a tent together and Nynaeve is like do they and we learn stuff about the green Aja that they can have a lot more than one warder and uh, and often they are very very uh intimate with their with their warders i liked the campfire warder scene because it like it, you can tell in the book it, especially throughout the rest of the books too but in the first one with it there's like this weird the warder like a relationship is just <laughs> really strange like it's not yeah it's not something that i could describe in the non-novel like our real our, the real it, irl you know like there's nothing that's similar to me. It's like this weird sibling-esque, but like sexual repressed, like, but also like warrior kind of weird thing going on. And I think mm -hmm. each episode contributes it. Like there's, you know, kid, when you and I were texting about 
the bath scene with Maureen and Lan, you question, oh, mm. this is kind of weird. What's going on here, you know? But then, then they have like the. So I, th- I thought they do a good job of making that relationship kind of strange. Yeah, in on air for that first episode, Katie had described it as she got the vibe from the bath type scene. Oh yeah, this like establishes that Lan and Moraine have this kind of old married couple thing going on, or there's at least some sort of intimacy from many long years. This casual easiness with which they share everything with one another that we get expanded on with the scene between the two of them in this episode, where um, and we even learned that like Lan getting drunk can get ninety or can get uh, Moraine a little bit uh, uh, emotional. Like he's like, oh, you're always emotional when I drink because of the bond they share and and this really like almost they start you can imagine like going for decades and decades and decades sharing this emotional link with someone like the kind of intimacy that creates which one of the Aes Sedai or one of the warders tells us is yeah there's nothing else quite like that bond it's different from a husband and wife it's diff- different from parent and child it's different from any friendship and we already start to see the tension that might give with Nynaeve and Lan and the feelings that they are kind of having for each other because we we are also sort of informed the sexual warder relationship thing that's like specifically a green aja thing that's not something that the the other ajas do and notably did you note it did you pick up keely i don't think they said it explicitly maybe they did that the red aja don't have any warders at all that it's only the green aja who do yeah i noticed that um at least in the show that like it's yeah. just kind of leandrin on her own with like the other women that she doesn't have any established warders because like they would have been around the circle but it just feels like they've done such a good job job of separating that like you know the blue and the green I Sedai can be friends and like mm. their warders hang out and the red are just like off being determined to be yeah. you know good cop bad cop and not have any kind of interaction yeah they're, they're really establishing all that and, and hinting that there's a lot of politics in in the white tower we get mention of the omerlin seats orders and whether whether the reds are far enough from the white tower right now that they'd be willing to break the direct command of the omerlin seat um so i'm curious to see how much of that we get in season one that we don't in eye of the world there's like almost no white tower politics or scenes i don't think in eye of the world and those are some of my favorite parts of of the book so it'll be cool to see if we get more of that politicking uh meanwhile rand and matt are following tom who saved them from dana and we get more interesting possibility here this is something that's i think clearly not in the book at all the idea that that um matt the idea of tom Picking up and expressing to Rand that everything that's happening to Matt now, like the the whispering he's doing, the the going off, the suspicion and the paranoia, this seems a lot like when my nephew Owen t- started touching the One Power and then you know wound up basically indirectly killed by the Aes Sedai, who cut him off from the One Power. The red the red Aja showed up, cut him off from the One Power, and then he shortly after was just um, utterly depressed and committed suicide and and died at the dinner table. But this was, I thought, a pretty interesting condensation of a lot of the Rand and Matt traveling scenes leading up to Tom's dramatic sacrifice with the Fade who shows up. But this happens in Whitebridge in the novel, and here it happens on just some small farm. We meet a family very briefly before they meet a grizzly a grizzly end in the farm there's a more misdirection that for a moment like it's like matt like holding the dagger and looking and he's among all these like dead bodies of the family with blood pouring out everywhere and you think he might have murdered them and something is whispering to him and there's something like black that's coming out of his mouth that he's vomiting at various points in the episode but then the dagger like leads him in this really ominous way to point up and be like I see you to the Fade who is in the shadows up in the rafter. And oh, the Fade killed them, not 
Matt, because they really set us up to think that Matt had just straight up murdered this whole family. Uh, I, which... It's interesting you said that, because I, I took it as, I still felt like he killed them, even mm. throughout the episode, because... Oh, really? Okay. I felt like Rand and Tom came in and were like, oh god, what did you do? They saw mm -hmm. the fade, I still felt like there was this energy of pull Matt away from what he's done, because, like, this is terrible. Like, I... I yeah. I was I was not hundred percent sure at the end whether I, I felt like Matt because I think in the uh, it, in the books um, I don't remember does Matt kill anyone innocent in the first uh, book because of darkness or whatever not where we are Rand has like stopped him every time right Keely yeah. that he that he tries to get like we should kill them and take their ex or no they're definitely a dark friend we should kill them any the da like whispering at his little dagger and caressing it in his pocket my precious like. I mean, even even the mm -hmm. fact that like I'm questioning whether they did, and you're saying they didn't, means they did a mm -hmm. good job with the scene because it was very like ambiguous. Yeah, I definitely felt like that whole scene was playing out to show that he didn't. Um, mm -hmm. Because at first I was like, "Oh, come on, dude!" Yeah. And then when he pointed the the knife and the fade showed up, I was like, "Oh." <laughs> so yeah, I took it away as that he didn't, um, mm -hmm. especially because the little girl I think just reminded him so oh, much yeah. of his sisters. So, and like he makes con like eye contact with her dead body as they're leaving. So I just kind of felt mm -hmm. like a, you know, I feel like Matt is very much like the Boromir can be corrupted, but mm -hmm. not that much. Yeah, yeah. Where like he would do something because like his sisters are everything. So like that's why he wants to go home is because like his sisters. Oh, yeah. And the, the girl gives him a little, her little Birgitta doll named after the hero of the hunt, who I don't think we've heard about. At this point in the show, maybe she was in one of maybe she was in Tom's songs earlier. I don't I don't think so. Um, yeah, but that was that was a really sweet scene. There were a lot of we talked about this, uh, Keely, in text like every character in the show is about 50 percent or more emotionally honest and open with one another than they are in Eye of the World. And even even Tom with I mean, Tom is emotionally honest with with the boys when when they're on the run in the book. And he does the same thing here that he's concerned about them because of what his nephew went through and he see, sees him in, in them and he's going to do everything he can to get the boys out safely, even though he so far it's like he gets like maybe a couple scenes of episode three and a couple scenes of episode four before he is staying behind to try and stop the the really frightening fade. I think they, they've done a good job with the fades here um, so that the, the two boys can escape. But he convinces, you know, Rand to be, you know, look out, look out for him. Like, you know, you've got to, you got to help each other. And there's this very sweet scene of, of Rand and, and Matt lying in the barn and the hay next to each other and Rand being like, you know, you know, you can trust me, right? Like, I'm here for you. You can tell me what's going on, which was just like Rand expresses all that inside in his head in Eye of the World. But it's so rare in the novel for any of these damn Two Rivers characters to just say what they feel about one another or to express <laughs> concern for one another. So I thought that was a really good moment. And the show has done such a good job of humanizing all these characters the, the actors i think have a lot to do with that i think every every one of us has said in in Wattcast so far at some point that we're feeling more connection to these characters early on than we were in the novel and you're you're nodding keely i can see him smiling there that uh yeah <laughs> yeah i think that was like one of the first things that i complained about uh <laughs> about the books was that like you know as soon as the boys start having the dreams you're like oh don't fucking tell anyone like tell yeah, everyone yeah. everything none <laughs> of you have any idea what the hell is happening so I was so happy, you know, first episode that Maureen was like, y'all fucking dreaming? You got to tell me. <laughs> like, Thank you. Like that took that away. Um, and then, yeah, with, with uh, the whole scene with Tom and then, you know, Rand speaking up. And this also so much to me is like, 
I don't know if Robert Jordan intended this, but kind of like a commentary on just mental illness in general, right? Because hmm. like they're the age of onset for many major mental illnesses, uh, which is like that late teens, college age. Um, and so this is why I want Eric's opinion on all of this mm. too. It's oh, yeah, like, we should have you know, the the if if all of these boys and potentially Egwene are starting to develop like these different things, like where you know they're potentially hearing voices and taking mm-hmm. that away from them leads to them killing themselves. Like so much of this is screaming, like we need a mental health podcast yeah. where they <laughs> talk about what this means. Um, so I just really appreciate that, like, you know, they're showing the dynamics between all of the friendships and all of, mm-hmm. you know, the different characters, but especially Rand and Matt, where, you know, Matt was being kind of a dick to Rand when they first got to the the little town where like he wasn't going to help do anything mm-hmm. and he was just being pissy. But then like no matter what, Rand is still there for him. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, we grew up together. This is really hard. This is bullshit. But like you can tell me anything. I was like, oh, like look at yeah. you guys <laughs> having emotional growth. I appreciate you. <laughs> The Matt, Matt, the Matt act, the actor, and you know, I, I was talking with you on WhatsApp was just so like compelling. Like, he, yeah, I feel like he does such a good job of walking the line of like re- slight an- annoyance, like really cringy annoyance with Matt, but at the mm-hmm. same time, like being super endearing. Like, even in episode three with the scene with him talking with Dana, it's like this cringy, just leave her alone, man. But also, it's like yeah, it's really. Yeah. Like he, he does a really good job of walking that. That feels so quintessentially Matt to me, like more so from book two than book one. But the uh, but being that borderline of the most annoying person there, but so charming and so like deep down, actually a thoughtful and caring person and the way that he feels protective about his sisters, about his friends. Yeah, I'm I'm loving that performance. I, I, I It's really sad that I think uh, we won't be getting it in season two, but. Um, you know, like like we've been saying, the casting direction for this show is so good that I'm hopeful that the the replacement actor that they got for him will be an e- and you know an equally emotionally resonant role. Because I, I really like these portrayals of all the characters, and Tom is becoming a little bit more Tom in this episode. I think to my the wheel weave, Caleb, the wheel yeah, weave. <laughs> Everyone comes back into again. It all returns. Which is another perfect segue to, so I can't pick a favorite of the plot, the three major plots in this episode, but boy, do I love the Tuathan stuff. And this was already like, we talked on a few episodes of the of Wattcast to go, how much I loved these campfire conversations and the dance scenes with the Tuathan and with them explaining the way of the leaf and the very deep empathy there that I felt like was a rare early moment of, of Jordan sort of doing more of what he's better at later of, of really... Um, expressing this culture in a really, I thought, um, empathetic and, and rich way. And the scenes around the campfire here with, uh, is it, uh, is it Marie or Maria Kennedy Doyle? Let me look it up real quick to say Marie Kennedy Doyle, wonderful Irish character ac- actress playing, is it Ela here? Ela or Isla that she's playing here. She had me, she had me crying in, in her description of like, you know, why she follows the way of the leaf and what, and what happened with her daughter before and why she's clean in, in this conversation with Perrin. I think Aaron, Aram, her grandson is, is wonderfully cast too. He's got that perfect, like charming, um, you know, doesn't quite agree with his, with his parent, parents and grandparents philosophy might want to go out into the world thing going on. Uh, I loved all this. What, what did y'all think of Egwene and, and Perrin's 
detour here now that we're getting more of the scenes here. Yeah, I really liked um, all of the scenes with with the Tinkers. I am so happy that they took out all of parents being like a weird, jealous, protective <laughs> yeah. dude when Egwene goes mm-hmm. and talks and like does anything with Aram. I'm really happy that they took that out um, because that just felt like freaking weird. And like the, that, I think that was playing into why the characters were reading so young to us. Mm-hmm. Where there were, you know, the only interaction or like emotional, you know, range that any of the boys were showing in the book so far, it's like, oh, well, Rand is so much better with girls. Yeah, so I'm happy they took that out and that they're showing, I, I'm really loving that they're showing kind of this like grief that Perrin is dealing with. Mm-hmm. And that by talking to someone else that went through such intense grief, it's kind of like showing him that like you can be okay um so like going back to the mental health i feel like this that was such a good scene between him and i guess it's isla or ila or whatever Mm -hmm. um with her explaining that because at least where i'm at in the book they have not explained why aram is with his grandparents so it was neat to get some context from the show for why he's with them yeah and we get even the dance the dance scene i thought was done really well they have the music we we learn more about the song and Egwene. and i hope it's i hope it is aram i really can't remember what the character's name is actually um but played by somebody from peaky blinders uh who uh what's his name he's he's also an irish actor i think um something mccormick who who i think uh is yet another casting that embodies that character well i mean i thought the tuathon scenes were really excellent like they if you were talking back earlier in the episode about culture and distinctive like you know uh you know energy and and like dress and and way of speaking i felt like the tuathon has been the best example of that by far so far it's like very exactly kind of how you imagine it looks. Uh, it stayed really true to it. Uh, and, and also the, the Egwene, um, yeah, like Aram thing, I think it was like a, a good setup uh, and well done. A lot of chemistry between them uh, well. And we get hints from her in their conversation of something that we've talked about before, which is yet another thing that is a richer dynamic on the show is the complicated romance between between Egwene and Rand and the way that she still feels for him. And we talked about in episode one, or at least Katie and I did, and then I think Dan and I did in episode two about, like you were saying, Keely, these characters are not just like, you know, giggling 13-year-olds who have never heard of sex before and are afraid of it. Like we have Rand and Egwene hooking up very early on, and we already get in episode one the complication of how they feel for each other and whether they're drifting apart and that Egwene is going to become a wisdom, which in the show, if not the book, means that she's not supposed to take um not supposed to take a husband or have kids and and here we get that they are that you know she doesn't believe he's died because she thinks that she would know she um maybe that's related to her being able to listen to the wind and and everything that she that she's still but she's one way or another convinced that rand is alive somewhere and just having a frank conversation with aram about that about um why she's still like a little emotionally distant so yeah every every character is getting something i feel like we're getting something to hang on to when the relations between them the the parent thing too was was well done because in the books too Perrin kind of gets uh like convinced by this ar- argument of the way of the violence is like not an answer and mm-hmm. uh i think they do a good job of him like questioning that when uh what's what's her name uh Ilya or, or whatever was talking to him mm-hmm. uh and, and i think like even even the the what did she said the line she says to him at the end of that scene i think was like you know, uh, when you when you picked up the axe or whatever, <laughs> yeah. 
your your has your life gotten worse or better or something something uh-huh. alluding to like picking up a weapon yeah and, yeah and that that helps play into parents reluctant to like really engage you know, in being mm-hmm. violent I do feel like she was invoking a little bit of a correlation causation issue, given that if Perrin didn't pick up the, I mean, she didn't know what happened, but, but if he didn't pick up the ax, then he and, and Layla would both be dead. Right. I guess is the, what Elias would say if Elias were here, it's like, yeah, you know, it's not a, it's not a good thing, but, um, but certainly a, a horrible, a horrible thing that, uh, that he did wind up killing her by accident in the course of that scene, which, yeah, it's just, it's giving more for him to work with. Cause Perrin is somebody who I feel like really didn't start to become a character until after these scenes with the Twatha on in, in the book and really starting to learn more of who he is. And this just allows us to shortcut getting faster to some growth and struggle with him, which I think also Nick will will color Perrin's future relationships with other characters in an interesting way, having this background here. And, that, and that's the most I'll say about that. But I think I think it is generally a good change that the, the screenwriters for the show felt the instinct that he needed something a little more earlier on for audiences to hold on to. Yep. Uh, anything else uh, in this episode? Uh, I guess in terms of just like little world building things to know that the book hasn't revealed yet, we learned that... I said I can link and they can share their power and direct it through one person who then combines, in this case, Leandrin has all the other I said I linked to her when they're fighting Loghain to to channel their combined strength to cut him off, to shield him, and then to gentle him. And we get Nynaeve's like a radiant sun scene at the end. Um, is that it? Any, anything else that we want to say about episodes three and four this week and, and we're, what we're feeling about the show? I don't think, I think that's it. Yeah, the only, I, I had like episode four was me the by like probably head and shoulders above the other three episodes. I thought it was mm. really excellent. Like the only small thing that bothered me was like the whole Logan supposed to be Geldan or whatever in the book. They sort of like, you know, combined those, but I thought it was well done. And overall, I thought the episode was really excellent. Yeah, I think kind of the things that they've changed. Well, you know, that Eli- Elias, Elias is not there. So I was just mm-hmm. thinking like, okay, if I was Perrin and a fucking wolf came up to me and just licked my wound, I would be absolutely terrified. So, you know, mm-hmm. just thinking of like, what is Perrin going through? That like, you know, he accidentally killed this person that I don't know that Layla loved him because no. he said, I love you. And she said, I know, which is no. like, oh, you're poor Seems to be soul. A, a, a rough <laughs> yeah. marriage, yeah. Um, but like going through the grief of that and then being separated from everyone. And then I can't really tell what kind of relationship he has with Egwene because like first episode kind of opening scenes, him with Rand, there's a lot of creepy staring at Egwene happening from everyone, but Hmm. Perrin as well. And so I can't really tell what the relationship is with Perrin and her because maybe, maybe it's not intentional, but just like he's weird with her in some ways. And so I can't tell what that is. Um, but that there's no, so she, Moraine didn't give them any coins. Oh no, they like, left that out totally, didn't they? The, yeah, the they left that thing. out. Yeah. So when she's talking to Lan and she's like, we lost them. It's like, yeah, cause you didn't give them the fucking coins that would have told <laughs> you if they were alive. And then there was no, there's no, um, Padden Thanus, the crazy guy in, was that in Whitebridge? Yeah. Yeah. We, we've, we've had multiple appearances by him in Berlin, I think was one, one of them, but yeah, Padden Thane hasn't showed up again since so, he sort of backed away from the scene of the Trollocs, uh, savaging yeah. the two rivers. Yeah. And I couldn't tell what that face was that he made. Was that like a, I, I'm not getting fucking involved in leaving or was that like a, yeah, mm-hmm. this is going to plan. Like that was a weird kind of thing from the actor. I can't, I can't really get a read on him, but we've had like two scenes with him. Um, I'm sure he'll be back before the end of the season. They can't fully skip um, yeah. the, those scenes with them. Um, I think probably like the biggest takeaway for me from 
this final episode was the quote from Lan to Moraine, or maybe she said it to him, where they're talking about, does the Dark One know who the dragon is? And she said, I don't know. And he mm-hmm. was like, you know, I don't know if that's reassuring or scary. And I was like, mm-hmm. very good point. <laughs> like, we don't know <laughs> if that's a good thing either. Yeah, all, all really good points. And I, I guess we'll see how all of that develops as it goes on. I'm I'm really excited for the next episode. We're booking through plot. What What is it? It's going to be, um, is this a 10 episode season? I, I forget. Uh, 10, it's nine eight. or 10. Only eight. eight. Okay. Wow. It's so we're, we're halfway through we're it now. Halfway. We're, <laughs> um, yeah, they, they've got a lot to cram in, but they're, they're moving fast and, uh, I guess we're definitely getting season two. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what comes of it. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being uh, with us this week, Nick. It was awesome getting your input oh, yeah. on this. Definitely great to, great to like nerd out with someone who actually knows what I'm talking about. Whereas <laughs> I see my wife sitting there like what what happened what is the dragon again is that like an actual dragon or oh she's watching along the whole way on these uh does she does she have general thoughts is she interested in the show at all or is it not really her wheelhouse following it because i told her it's sort of like game of thrones so i think that pizza range uh but she she's those are a lot of questions so it's good to have that foil because i can tell i it starts to reveal to me like what they what they are doing like well really well and not or what they're communicating well and not uh yeah like they they dropped the amarillin seat name at some point or title at some point in the episode and it was kind of just way just passed over and there were other things that that she's kind of curious about but mm-hmm. uh but but i think she's enjoying it so far nice yeah and i feel like that's even the experience of reading the book there's so many names thrown out so many background items that you have no idea until much much later the context for anything yeah well, but thank you thank you let me jump on yeah awesome to have you uh and maybe we'll have you back for for some future show caps uh, this episode of wadcast was produced by yours truly you can find me on twitter and instagram at caleb wimble keely where can people find you on uh twitter and instagram at keely underscore reads and nick i should have asked before the show but do you are do you have a web presence that you're interested in, in no, no, okay okay that's fine <laughs> And remember, you can find us all the regular hosts at Wattcast.net. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast. And support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast, where for $5 a month at the Tar Valentier, you can get access to those special bonusodes we mentioned, including the uh, the two Dune Saga episodes so far. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps. Um, but you can support us completely free by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Number two way we find new listeners The number one way, of course, is to tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But this is an ending. Farewell.
All right. <laughs> but yeah, it's great to have you, Nick, uh, jumping on like sort of last minute uh, figuring out oh, everybody's oh, I on. Love it. I'll do that. Any, anytime. So, like I, I get so excited about these episodes that I've never talked about the <laughs> Yeah, that's the problem with it not having quite the cultural ubiquity of Game of Thrones by, by the, I guess it wasn't for the first couple seasons, but Wheel of Time fans are fewer and harder to find since the 90s, I think, when it was <laughs> much more common for anybody in the high fantasy. Um, uh, I just posted in the, the chat, um, Rafe Judkins just did an AMA two days ago where he answered questions about the show. Ooh, um, nice. So I'm probably reading spoilers by <laughs> reading his answers, but I don't uh -huh. I won't remember it until we get to it. Um, but it's pretty interesting. I saw there was this because I was looking what does Barney Harris have a social media presence and he doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, but I did see that um, Rafe has seen the replacement actor in a couple scenes and thinks that he's going to be a good fit and that people will like him. Um, also that they're hoping that this show will go on for at least eight seasons. So we're getting set up to be officially <laughs> let down. <laughs> if they do not. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting. First question, the first question, why are you not using any of the Wheel of Time swears? <laughs> and he says, he says, blood and ashes, give us some time, it's coming. Oh, yeah, that's true. They haven't. I didn't even notice that. Like yeah. I mentioned, the dialogue was a little different, but yeah. We haven't had light blind me, light burn me. Um, yeah. Yeah, some of these are major spoilers. How do you manage, uh, not a spoiler, how do you manage your mental health while doing such a huge project? I sat in silence for 30 long seconds after reading this question. <laughs> it is a good one. Ha ha is, is Rafe's answer to that. <laughs> uh -huh, guys, but thanks a lot. Thanks, Nick. Thank uh, you. Have, have a good rest of your Thanksgiving Black Friday weekend.